So did anybody read your bulletin this morning? Anybody look at my sermon title? What, what, what's the sermon title say? Well, shut my mouth. I don't know how you responded to that. My wife read it and laughed out loud. She said, where did you get that? And I said, well, I have this process I call brainstorming when I'm thinking about a sermon. And I was responding to a quote that I saw on Facebook earlier last week. And the quote on Facebook said, and you've got this in your notes if you're looking at the notes in front of you, I prefer not to think before speaking. I enjoy discovering along with others, being surprised along with others by what comes out of my mouth. How do you respond to a statement like that? Well, shut my mouth. And uh, I had to laugh. And so, we've been making this journey through the book of James, right? For like two months. I don't know how long we've been at this. And James' goal and ambition is to encourage and help these refugees who have fled from Jerusalem, Jewish Christians who have been persecuted. They've left home, family, friends, jobs, and they're scattered. And they're continuing to experience persecution. And so James has been trying to encourage them. And the cornerstone of what he has tried to communicate, what he wants them to understand, has to do with their faith, right? And so he's talking to them about what does true, genuine, living faith look like? And so we learned right out of the gun in verse 2 of chapter 1. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials, right? That's the easiest thing to do. Don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. You got problems? Celebrate. Faith knows how to respond to times of trial and trouble. It also knows how to respond properly to times of temptation. Because it's easy in times of trial and trouble to be tempted to live your life in a way that cuts corners and takes shortcuts because you're uncomfortable. And in the process of taking shortcuts, you move yourself outside of God's will and God's plan for you. That's the temptation. But genuine faith knows how to respond and to remain and persevere, right? We've talked about the importance of not playing favorites. You treat the rich and the poor, the male and female, the slave and the master, all the same. That's how genuine faith operates and what it looks like. Last week, our focus was on the fact that a genuine, living faith is marked by a life of productive, fruitful works. James introduced that whole section by saying, uh, if, if you claim to have faith but no works, can, can that kind of a faith save? And the answer to that question was what? No. You can have uh, a faith that is dead. You can have a faith that is demonic. But what you really need in your life is a faith that is... Oh, thank you. I was hoping someone would remember. That's always scary when I do that, when it's total silence. So James has been talking to them about the importance of their faith. And so this morning, as we come to James chapter 3, his focus picks up on a theme that he's kind of touched two or three times. We learned several weeks ago that phrase that we've heard for many years, those of us that have been in the church for a long time, be 
quick to hear and slow to speak. And at the end of James chapter 1, James says, If you claim to be religious, but you're not able to bridle your tongue, guess what? You are deceived. And so he's been kind of placing along the way thoughts about our speech patterns, how we speak, the way that we talk. And now in chapter 3, he's got both barrels of the shotgun loaded and ready to go. So are you ready? Well, shut my mouth. Here we go. And so James wants us to understand, and we ought to read the chapter, right? Or the first 12 verses is what we're going to talk about this morning. So come with me if you haven't already come to James 3. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they may obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Behold, the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold how great a forest fire is set, uh, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles, creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. And everybody said, yeah, you don't want to say amen there, I know. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things not, ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh. And so James is concerned... Well. His primary concern that introduces the chapter, and he expresses that as the pursuit of people that he's addressing. He says, don't become many what? Teachers. Some of your translations say masters. Uh, The word is the idea of one who teaches. And so James cautions them about that pursuit. Why? Stricter judgment. So if if you choose to put yourself in a place of a teacher, especially a teacher of God's Word, you're held to a higher standard. There's stricter judgment. If you look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, the writer to the book of Hebrews says to obey those that are in charge. Submit to them because they they watch over your souls and guess what? They're going to give account. Interestingly, if you were a a Jewish parent, 
Your chief ambition for your son, if you had a son, your chief desire, that which would give you the greatest joy, would be if your son would choose to become a rabbi. That was the highest desire a parent had for their child. And so James is saying, time out, slow down, wait. You shouldn't be moving that way. That shouldn't be your chief pursuit because there's stricter judgment. I had a, I, my great-grandmother on my mom's side, Eifler, very German. My great-grandmother prayed for a son that would be a preacher. That was a, a passion for her. She prayed for a son that would be a preacher. Didn't happen. So the next generation was born and she began praying again for a grandson that would be a preacher. She held that in high, high value, high regard. None of her grandsons became a preacher. So again, she shifted gears. I'm the oldest grandson. And she began praying that one of her grandsons, great-grandsons, would become a preacher. That was a high, high value for her. And sadly, she didn't live long enough to discover that that prayer was answered at the age of 13 when I made a commitment to be a pastor. But that was the chief desire of a Jewish parent. And James says, slow down, time out. Don't pursue that. Stricter judgment. But he moves on from this, and now there's a problem that he personally admits to. What's the problem? We all stumble in many ways. Notice what the text says. It doesn't say people stumble in many ways. Most stumble in all their ways. He says what? All of us stumble in many ways. And so James, I think, is putting himself in the same box, in the same bucket, and he's admitting, you know, I've stumbled too. What's it mean to stumble? To trip with the words that you say. To stumble with the words that you say. It's uh, another way of saying we all sin with our tongues, right? Anybody immune to that claim of James? So he identifies with this problem, and especially for those who teach that they would not trip or stumble with their tongues. But we all stumble with our tongues. And he moves on from that, and then there's this problem, or this promise rather. That was the problem. There's this problem that he presents, this promise he presents to them, and the promise is this. If anyone does not stumble in what they say, guess what? They're what? Perfect. Now you have to remember this word perfect is a favorite word of James. He's already used it several times. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect work that you might be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. He's encouraged them at the end of chapter 1 to look into the perfect law of liberty. This is a favorite word for James. And the idea of the word perfect is to be whole, complete, entire. It's a word that speaks of integrity. To be perfect is to be mature, complete, whole, entire. And so the promise is, if you don't stumble and trip with your words, you don't sin with your tongue, the result is you are... Mature. It's a mark of maturity. A controlled tongue is a mark of maturity. But he goes on in this promise and says what? If you can control your tongue, guess what? 
you can control your whole body. The passions, the, the lusts, the pursuits of the, of the human body. If you can control your tongue, you can control everything else. That to, to me, that's a staggering thought. Control your tongue. And so James presents two pictures to help us understand what this is all about. He presents, first of all, the picture of the bit in a horse's mouth. And then he presents the picture of the rudder on a ship. And so his whole point is this, this small, tiny item, the bit that fits in the horse's mouth, that as you try to stop the horse or turn the horse, that bit becomes the tool, that little bit is the tool that does that. Ships have rudders. Compared to the size of the ship, the rudder is pretty small. But that little rudder controls the ship. Any of you have any sailing experience? Any sailors in the house? My vast experience of sailing happened in junior high. I was at camp that my grandparents were uh, conducting shooting classes at. And I went along with them. And they put me in an eight-foot Sabbath sailboat and pushed me out into the lake. And I learned by trial and error how to sail. Because the wind moves the boat, but what is it that determines the direction of the boat? The rudder. And so sitting in the back of that boat with the rudder, you determine where it's going to go. I have a lot more experience horseback riding. I love horses, love riding horses. I've often thought that I was born about 150 years too late. I should have been born in the late uh, 1860s. I could have been a cowboy, right? You know, I just, that whole, that whole world fascinates me. When I was in junior high ministry 50 years ago, I took my junior hires to Rawhide Ranch down near Bonsall, which is down near Vista, Fallbrook, that area. And each of the kids and myself, we were all given a horse for the beautiful Appaloosa mare. She'd been a racehorse, retired, and now she's at this Christian camp. And I remember we had to take care of our horse. We had to brush her and whatever. But every day, for one hour, they gave the counselors, myself and others, an hour to ourselves to do whatever we wanted. Someone else was with the kids. They had a rest time or nap time. And so I immediately went to my horse, put the bridle on. No saddle. Just a blanket. So there's no stirrups to hang on to. And I would, I would get my horse, saddle or the blanket and the bridle, and I would go ride in the arena. I had never ridden at a full gallop ever before. That horse loved to run. And I had no saddle horn to hang on to, so I had you know, one hand in the mane, right? Little bridle, little bit, little rudder. And so this becomes James' analogy, his picture for us, that your tongue and my tongue, just like the bit in the horse's mouth, just like the rudder on the ship, determines the direction of life. And so, what James is trying to tell me as I read these words and reflect on them, is that the things that I say have the power to direct people positively or negatively. 
The words that you say, the use of your tongue, have the power to direct people or positively. Just like that tiny bit and that small rudder, our tongue has that ability. And so we all stumble in many ways, but we need to learn to bridle our tongue. He moves on from this discussion about the fact that the tongue has the power to direct. Um, And he talks about the fact that what I want to say, the tongue has the power to destroy. And so as James is talking about the tongue, one of the things that impressed me as I was reflecting on these verses this week is how similar James' thinking is to the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Proverbs talks to us about what? Wisdom. There's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. So we think of wisdom as being kind of connected to knowledge. I've heard people say wisdom is the application of knowledge. And that makes sense. I understand that. And that's true. But biblically, the word wisdom, the root idea is skill. And so the word wisdom appears in the Torah, in Moses' instructions, or God's instructions to Moses to build the tabernacle. And God tells Moses to find men skilled in woodworking, the word wisdom. Find men skilled with tapestry, wisdom. To find men skilled in the working with bronze, wisdom. Wisdom is skill. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom is skill to live a godly life. You want to know how to live a godly life? Read Proverbs. And so, just for fun, I thought, I wonder, in the book of Proverbs, how often the wisdom of Solomon and the other writers of Proverbs, how often they mentioned the tongue, the lips, the mouth, uh, to speak, uh, words. And so I, I did a little search, a little research, And uh, thank the Lord for modern technology, or I'd be lost in the weeds. So the word tongue in the 31 chapters in Proverbs appears 18 times. The word lips appears 35 times. The word mouth, 48 times. And the words speech, speak, and talk, another 12 times. 113 times in 31 verses. Where skill for godly living addresses what topic? The way that we talk. And so James says the way that you speak has the ability to to direct people's lives. But it also has the ability to destroy people's lives. So look at the next paragraph. Beginning in verse 5. How does James describe the tongue? Well, he's got a whole list. He says... get my list out here in front of me. uh, He says... The tongue is a small thing. It boasts great things. That little tiny tongue. Again, a little Google search. How, how heavy is the average adult tongue? Have you ever wondered about that? You thought, you've thought about that many times. and So I'm going to tell you the answer according to Google, what I found online. So... The average uh, size of a man's tongue, 
Oh, it's in my notes here somewhere. Where did I, where did I lose it at? I think the average size of a man's tongue is 3.5 ounces. And I was really distressed to discover that the average weight of a female tongue was only 3.1 ounces. Small. Tiny. And yet James says this small part is a fire. He calls it the very world of iniquity. Is that encouraging this morning? How many of you have a tongue? Yeah, there you go. Um, he then says, it defiles the entire body. What, what does that word defile suggest to you? Makes it dirty. It, it mars it. It damages it. He says, my tongue defiles my entire body. And then he says, it sets on fire the course of life. What does that mean? Well, the original language uses the word wheel of life. And so, because I'm a cyclist, this is where my head goes. So the wheel has a, a rim, right? You all tracking with me? Don't, you, okay. You rode a bike before, so don't just kind of look at me that way. So the wheel has a rim, it has a hub in the middle, and then it has spokes. And so a wheel, everything connects together, right? Everything connects. And so James says, it sets on fire the wheel of life. All of your life is connected to the tongue. All of your life is connected to the words that you speak, the things that you say. All my life. Every facet of it. One, one writer said, a person's entire life can be injured or destroyed by the time, tongue. Time does not correct the sins of the tongue. We may confess our sins of speech, but the fire keeps on spreading. That's true. You can stumble in what you say. You can say something that damages or destroys another person. You can recognize it and confess that what you did was wrong, but the fire spreads. It keeps burning. Of all the people on the planet, we in Southern California should understand about fires, right? And I think of how easily and how quickly some of these fires have begun. It might be a, a single spark like a cigarette that's tossed. Or it could be a smoke bomb from a gender reveal party that sets half of Oak Glen or, uh, yeah, Oak Glen or wherever that part over A little flame... Huge fire. And, and so James is painting a picture with all these expressions about the tongue. It's a fire. It sets on fire the course of life. Oh, and then he says this. It is set on fire by hell. What in the world does that mean? Well, remember he's writing to a Jewish audience, right? Jewish believers. Fled from Jerusalem. Well, the word translated hell in my Bible, I don't know what words you find in yours, but in the original language, it's the word Gehenna. What is Gehenna? Anyone know? It's the burning trash heap outside the city of Jerusalem. Outside the eastern wall of Jerusalem, uh, trash would be tossed, garbage would be tossed, and it was on fire burning all of this debris 24-7. 
There were even times when dead bodies would be tossed there of criminals and others that weren't worthy of of better treatment. Gehenna, this ever-burning trash heap of fire. And James says, your tongue is set on fire by this trash heap. Not a pretty picture. Then he says this, the tongue is untamable. I don't know about you, but that's kind of discouraging news, right? If my tongue has the power to direct the lives of others for good or bad, right or wrong, and if my tongue has the power to destroy, if I can't tame my tongue, that's kind of depressing news. We need to think about that. And then he says, it is a restless evil. Your tongue. That little dude right there. Restless evil. If you have the King James or the New King James, I think it says unruly evil. The the message says, your tongue runs wild. We're going to talk about that a lot more at the end. And then he says this, the tongue is full of deadly poison. How do poisons work? Slow, invisible, undetectable. But ultimately, the result of poison is what? Death. And so James has this whole grocery list of everything he tells me about my tongue. Proverbs 17:27 says, "He who restrains his word has knowledge." Have you ever damaged somebody with your tongue, the words that you spoke? Yeah, I would say, yeah, probably lots of times. Anybody else in the room gifted with the gift of sarcasm? Two of us, three of us, four of us, thank you. Um, I I took great courage many years ago when I read that sarcasm is a sign of intelligence. (laughs) All four of you agree with me, I know. The rest aren't so sure. Um, If you were to look on my Facebook page, it it has a place where you put in what languages you speak. And so on my page it says English, Klingon, and Sarcasm. And um, coupled together with my very strange sense of humor, I I think I've probably damaged a lot of people in the last 72 years. Thank the Lord for the first year or so that I couldn't speak. Um, But you realize how quickly and how easily it is for us to destroy someone else with our words. Victor reminded me this morning, the Scripture says, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be, what? Acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my God and Redeemer. Um, Yeah, the tongue has the ability to direct, but it also has the ability to destroy. I'm grateful for the next paragraph because James talks about the fact that the tongue has the power to delight. 
And he says, uh, with our tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men and uh, who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be. Those old western movies, all my cowboy movies that I love to watch, the American Indians had a phrase that they used about the tongue of the white man. And the phrase that they used to describe the tongue of the white man was what? Forked tongue. You speak with a forked tongue. What did that mean? <laughs> well, you, you speak out over here on the one side of the fork and it's good. It's, you know, it's, it's good stuff. But the other side of the tongue is lies and deception. And, and so James is kind of talking to us about a double tongue, a forked tongue, if you will, that it speaks both blessings and cursings. And so what James is saying is, you come to church on Sunday morning and you lift your voice and your hands to bless God and worship Him. And then you get in the car with your wife and or your kids and uh, it's time, instead of blessing, it's time for cursing because the kids are acting up, you're unhappy with your wife because she stayed and talked too long and you wanted to get to lunch. And so what James is saying is, so you're blessing God and in the next instant you're cursing men or your wife, your woman. And he says, these things ought not to be. And so he presents pictures again. He has all these pictures for us. And so he presents the picture of a fountain. A fountain that's producing clean, clear, sweet water. And what would you do if you had a spring that you were counting on for water, and one day you would go to that spring and you would dip up water and it would be cool and clean and fresh, but the next day you go and it's dirty, muddy, foul, pretty soon you'd be looking for another fountain, another spring. And so James uses this, this example of a, of a fountain. Your speech has the ability to, to be a blessing. It has the ability to bring delight to others. But it also has the ability to be foul water. In a little more than a month, I'm going to be on an airplane headed to the Central African Republic. And I'm looking forward to going with my friend Jim Hawking. Jim started a ministry almost 20 years ago called Water for Good. Many of you are familiar with it. Where we are drilling wells in Africa. Almost a million people currently are drinking clean, fresh water. The ministry of Water for Good. So we are drilling wells, maintaining almost 2,000 wells. And my hope is when I'm in Africa next month to be able to be present and to see well, wells being drilled, maybe get my hands dirty, I don't know. But the whole point is, if you are a Central African and you need water to drink, to cook with, if you don't have a well nearby with clean, fresh water, you have to walk. Young girls typically would walk mile, five miles to a dirty, muddy, disease-laden pool where they would dip their bucket and take water home so mom could cook and they could drink. And the result of that experience in Central Africa is a very high mortality rate in young children. 
Um, the result of that is the girls that are going all these distances for water don't go to school because they have to carry water all day long. And so because of the ministry of Water for Good, clean, fresh water is being produced. Girls aren't having to walk a mile or five miles or whatever. And babies aren't dying of, I don't know, what do you die from with that water? Malaria? Typhoid? Probably all the shots I got this last week. Cholera would be on the list. I didn't get a cholera shot. Is that bad? I got typhoid. I got meningitis. I got... I have to get yellow fever this next week. So, But my point is, clean water. You and I take it for granted. And James says, you have the ability with your tongue to be like that fountain that gives clean, clear water water that delights those who consume it. And he uses the the example of a fig tree. If you have a fig tree in your backyard, your expectation is that fig tree is going to produce what? Figs. Not olives. Thankfully, I don't like olives. But I love figs. Figs are high in potassium, so I eat fig newtons on bike rides. Um, And then he uses the example of a vine. If you have a vine in your backyard, your expectation is that vine's going to be producing grapes, sweet grapes. And so what happens if that vine starts producing figs, more fig newtons, I guess, I don't know. But James' whole point is, in addition to our tongues having the ability to give direction to people's lives, sadly, the ability to destroy lives, we have the ability to bring delight <laughs> or not. Just simply with, with our tongue. Proverbs 18.4 says, The words of a man's mouth are as deep waters, and the wellspring of wisdom as a flowing brook. I'd like my mouth to be a flowing brook. Bring delight to people. Proverbs 10.11 says, The mouth of a righteous man is a well of life. Proverbs 16.13 says, Righteous lips are the delight of kings, and he who speaks right is left. A mature faith is marked by a controlled tongue. And so as James has been talking to us about faith, faith plus works, a faith that lives itself out, we have discovered that that living, true, genuine faith is seen in the speech patterns in our life, the way that we treat others, our service to others, and then the standards of our life, how we live and act and behave, all are demonstrations of true, genuine, living faith. And here James has circled back to talk to us again about our speech, our tongue. My tongue, your tongue, has the power to destroy, power to direct, the power to delight. And those of us who teach, (laughs) that's the whole place where James began, right? Those of us who teach need to be aware, be reminded that uh, we face stricter judgment. That was the foundation of all of what James has said. But if you don't teach, guess what? You fall under the circle of all of us stumble 
in what we say, right? And if we don't stumble, we're, we're, we're perfect, mature, able to bridle the whole body. James has told us the tongue is, no one can tame the tongue. It's untamable. So do we give up trying? What's the solution? Well, there's a, there's a statement that Jesus made that I'm sure you've heard more than once in your lifetime. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the words that you speak, that which you communicate verbally with this little puppy right here, starts where? The heart. And so the real bottom line issue, the real bottom line need in my life is not to focus on my tongue, but to focus on my heart. Proverbs says to guard your heart. Out of it flow the issues of life. That's wisdom for godly living. And so we don't give up because James says, hey, you you can tame every animal on the planet. You can teach an elephant to do tricks. You can teach a killer whale to do tricks. You know, we've tamed all these animals. You can't tame the tongue. Does that mean we quit and give up and stop trying? No. No. What that means is we, we take a look at the heart. What's, what's in the heart? And so as I think about my heart, I realize the only person that can touch and change my heart is who? God. And so now my focus is, Lord, the prayer of David becomes very clear to me. Lord, David said, set a watch over my heart. Keep my lips. That needs to be the prayer of my life. Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. And so, I want you to consider Taming the Tongue 101. Okay? And so there's a little section in your notes if you're a note-taker person. And there's... All these pictures that James has been giving us, and each of these pictures speaks to me, and so I've summarized it this way. The bit in the horse's mouth is the small bit controls a large animal. Can we or can I control the use of my tongue? What's the answer to that question? Better be yes. Yes, but I need to be aware. I need to be alert. I need to be on guard doesn't just happen, especially if you're gifted as I am with the gift of sarcasm. And then he uses the picture of the rudder, a small piece, wood or steel, whatever it is that steers that huge ship. Do I understand that my tongue, even though it's small, can create grave consequences in the lives of other people? Do I understand that? Is that clear to me this morning? James has been hammering on it. Grave consequences. And then there's the, the analogy, the metaphor, the image of fire. A small spark that unleashes a destructive force. We're very aware of that in our physical world. Do we recognize in the spiritual world the powerful force that our words can have? 
I don't know what your life experience has been where people have said things to you that have hung here somewhere in your mind for decades. I remember I was in the throes of making a decision to leave the church I was pastoring in Sacramento and go to Modesto. And I still remember, like it was yesterday, words that my father said to me as I was making that decision that were not positive, were not instructive, were not helpful. And I remember those words as clearly as it was yesterday. Have followed me, that would have been 1985. I remember well one of my mentors when I was on the staff in youth ministry in Long Beach. And he used a phrase to describe me something that I lacked. I still remember that. 71, 72, that's 50 years ago. Can any of you think of illustrations? I'm not going to ask you to share it. Don't panic. But can you think of illustrations of things that were said to you somewhere in the course of your life that were damaging and destructive that have, you have carried in your mind? It's not there all the time, but it pops up. Do I really understand the power that my words have? He uses the analogy of all the animals on the planet can be tamed. Can we tame our, our tongue and our impulsive thoughts? You know, that statement I started with, you know, I, I, don't, I prefer not to think before I speak. I, I enjoy being as surprised as others by what comes out of my mouth. He uses the picture of poison. And I've written here, the venom of a snake kills its prey. I hope there's no snakes in Central Africa. I'm not a snake person. Can we keep our words from poisoning us and others? My words, your words, have the impact of poison. Ultimately deadly. He uses the analogy, the metaphor of a spring that can produce one kind of water. So what kind of water does your mouth produce? What kind of speech does your mouth produce? Does it produce clean, clear, or does it produce dirty, foul? And then there's the fig tree, fig tree and the vine. And those trees bear just one kind of fruit. And my my tongue, my fig tree, needs to produce... Is it good or bad? There's no middle ground. Is what my mouth producing, is it good or bad? And then uh, the tongue can be used for good or evil. Does my speech reflect my level of Christian spiritual maturity? So I beat myself up all week with these ideas, and now it's my turn to beat you all up. So... We need, I need to confess the reality that I stumble in what I say. 
There's, time when, there's times when I hurt and damage others with what I say. There's times when I've hurt my wife, damaged my wife. There's times when I've hurt and damaged my kids. There's probably times when I've hurt and damaged some of you. We need to confess and ask God to help us because we can't do it on our own, right? I don't have that ability on my own. I can take great joy in the intellect that's revealed in sarcasm, but that doesn't help me. It doesn't help me ultimately. James uses an interesting expression. He says of your tongue and my tongue that it's a restless evil. And if you remember that the audience he's writing to is Jewish by culture, Jewish by nature, Jewish by background. And so his audience that he's writing to would have been raised in that that Jewish faith, would have been raised in the Old Testament scriptures, would have been exposed to the teachings of the rabbis, and so on. Well, the rabbis had a concept they called Lashon Hara. And good Jews knew that they needed to be aware and avoid Lashon Hara. Lashon Hara is Hebrew for tongue of evil. And so some commentators have suggested that when James is writing to this Jewish audience and he just throws in this line about a restless evil, that what he's pointing them to is what they all would know in their good Jewish upbringing. Avoid Lashon Hara, the tongue of evil. The rabbis taught that the tongue of evil was the tongue that gossiped, the tongue that back backbiting, was engaged in backbiting, rumor-mongering, slander. If you, if you were doing those things, you were violating Lashon Hara. The rabbis took those sins, gossip, backbiting, slander, the rabbis equated those sins with the sins of idolatry, sexual immorality. They were all considered on the same level. And good Jews were warned against Lashon Hara. In fact, the rabbis went so far as to say that if you were a good Jew, you would choose death over gossip, backbiting, rumor-mongering, and such things. And, And James just slips that little word in there. Your tongue is an unruly evil. To a good Jew, the tongue of evil. They knew exactly what James was saying. And so, we need to beware of Lashon Hara in our lives. One of the rabbis taught, this obviously would have been more current contemporary time, one of the rabbis taught that if you were on the telephone with somebody else, and they began gossiping and spreading rumors, you were to hang up immediately. Something has come up. Click. Well, the something that came up was what? Lashon Hara. Beware of Lashon Hara. Lord, we freely acknowledge this morning that as James says, we all stumble 
in what we say. We all have said things. We all have spoken words that have, that have caused harm and damage. And we realize, as James says, no matter how quick we are to confess, how quick we are to realize, the, the flame spreads. The flame continues. And so, Lord, just, just simply remind us this morning that a, a mark of our level of Christian maturity is, is found in the words that we speak, the way that we talk, the way that we communicate with others. Lord, might we agree with the psalmist who said, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, that's our ambition. We acknowledge we do not have the ability to do this on our own. We need the the power of your indwelling Holy Spirit. We need the power of your word as it saturates our heart and minds. Uh, We desire to be men and women whose lives are marked with controlled tongues. And we submit ourselves to afresh this morning that you would help us, remind us, encourage us. Might you receive honor and glory because of what we say, how we speak to others, is our prayer together in Jesus' name. Amen.